So the Lord must have something to say today. I was watching that video back. I'm like, wow, that even fits in the message in ways I never anticipated. I thought we'd give a nod to July 4th, but that'll even speak into our message today if you watch that video at all. I'm going to start here with a fascinating quote from Amir Hussein. He wrote a book uh, called The Silent, the, the Sentiment Machine, where he writes about the coming age of artificial intelligence. And so listen to what he uh, says here. Uh, Today I find myself drawn to the important observation that the universe around us is clearly a consequence of computation. A seed, for example, encodes the information necessary to produce a tree. With DNA as the software and cells and proteins as the hardware, the biological process is a computational one. We find these types of algorithmic outcomes everywhere we look in the universe. Patterns like the, let's get this word right, patterns like the Fibonacci sequence, for example, unlock designs across our cosmos. Everything from flower petals to the curving shells of mollusks to spiral galaxies to hurricanes adheres to this mathematical formula. Is this by chance? There seems to be a mathematical seed at the heart of the cosmos that through the power of computation has been magnified into the universe as we know it, just as a tree is magnified into a sea. At some point in my early adolescence, I tried to imagine a future where all of science fused together, all the deductions completed, and all the building blocks of science synthesized into a great pyramid of knowledge. At the very top of this pyramid, however, I realized that I was still missing a block that tied it all together. That block is the ultimate question, what is this all for? He then concludes with a chilling realization that even with all of our advancements, we still don't know the purpose for our existence. Well, as I thought about that article, let's ponder it a moment and let's explore the ramifications of this Amir Hussein's observations. And what he does is he speaks to what we all know is intelligent design, right? There's intelligent design at the heart of our creation from the DNA that's in every human being to the unique fingerprints that we all embody. There is this, this, just this unique, this, this, this sort of this intelligent design that underscores everything. And... Think about this. Now note what Elsamir both sees and says. He has a couple of quotes I found quite powerful. I think I put them back on here. He says this, A seed, for example, encodes the information necessary to produce a tree. It's the idea that when we hold a certain seed in our hand, we hold that potential tree. And that's, that's quite an imagery, right? Like I'm holding a tree in my hand in this little seed. He builds on this premise when he says this, There seems to be a mathematical seed at the heart of the cosmos. That through the power that through the power of computation has been magnified into the universe as we know it just as a tree is magnified into a seed so it's not just like this seed is a tree it's like the whole universe is like like that it's just, it's just beyond our ability to understand it's just incredible Uh, incredible intelligent design and we see even deeper the unique properties then that are in that seed you know make the the petals what they are they they give it its unique size and shape and expression again i'm trying to simplify his conclusions and maybe i'm oversimplifying them but i think it's pretty amazing now this speaks to something that i think our country can can need to hear right now something where our country is going through that I think will be helpful. Let me show you something here. Let's go and look at what God says to us about creation a moment. 
our, our, what he says to us about our creation and our place in creation, right? Genesis 1, 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, uh, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. He goes on down later on in verse 24. He says this repeatedly. And God said, let the earth bring, bring forth fruits, living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And what he's telling us is that all from the plant life to the birds to the fish to the beasts of the field to the reptiles, whatever it is, the dinosaurs, everything was created after according to its own kind. Well, that's pretty impressive, right? All these different kinds of creations and, and creatures and, and trees and plants and all of this lining the world we live in today. But then he goes on and he gives a word to us. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God is very deliberate here in telling us that we were not created after our own kind. We were created after his kind. We were made in his image, in God's image. We are uniquely designed in God's image. And this is a really pressing message. Thinking about the world we're in today, I think it's a message our world needs to hear. Let me give you a side note before I get into the heart of the message here. Just a side note on this thing. We are different than the animal kingdom, right? And so we have this big issue right now that is just tearing our country apart. And this is where the incredible cultural cultural relevance ties into this point right here when it comes to abortion why is abortion wrong because we're not the animal kingdom we weren't made after our own kind we were made after god's kind we're made in god's image we were we were made uniquely designed with a spirit that can resonate and relate to god we were made to indwell god's spirit we were given an eternal spirit something that the rest of creation was not given so you hear that classic line, I heard this this week, thought it was so powerful, this whole, it's my body, my choice thing. And it's true, you do have a choice over your body, but the body inside of you is not your body. It's your responsibility. Because you are created in God's image. You have a higher responsibility than the dogs and the cats and the birds and the bees and the beasts of the field. We just simply do. The truth is, both women and men have a choice before there is a pregnancy and they have a responsibility after there is a pregnancy, both men and women equally. That's because we were made in God's image. Now, back to Amir Hussein's thoughts. Think about this. We're to tie this all together here. In every tree, in every tree is the DNA that was packed in that seed. Consider what that means to you and, you and me. In each one of us, packed inside of each one of us, is the Spirit of God, the seed of the Spirit of God is there. Now, we're born dead to God, we're born in sin, right? We understand that. But when you become saved, when you become a new creation in Christ, your spirit becomes alive to God, that unlocks a whole world of potential within you of what God can do in your life and of the spiritual fruit that you can now bear to God because you have God's Spirit in you and your spirit is alive to God. And your spirit and his spirit bears witness with your spirit. Romans 8, it's an amazing thing. We are in week two of our new series, Fruitology. It is, generally speaking, a biblical study of the theology of spiritual fruit. Like, what goes on in this whole issue of bearing spiritual fruit? 
personally, it's just how can we live a spiritually fruitful life? How do I live a spiritually fruitful life? And here's the big idea of this whole series. The spiritual fruitful life is the abundant life. Like Jesus came that we would know abundant life. And the abundant life is when I bear spiritual fruit to God. If that's what, that will bring me the most joy, the most happiness, the most satisfaction. The whole world is chasing after the pleasures of this world and money and wealth and riches and fame and all of that stuff. And they're unhappy and they're disappointed and they're searching. You come to Christ and you make a spiritual connection with your creator and he will unlock things in you that you never knew were possible. You know, the Bible talks a lot more about the fruit of the Spirit than we probably realize. Like, we're, we're or the, about, the, about, about spiritual fruit than we realize, right? We're aware of the fruits of the Spirit. But, but think about this. Did you know the Bible talks about, here's what some of the things it says. It talks about the fruit of our lips. It talks about the fruit of the light. It talks about the fruit of good works. It talks about the fruit of righteousness and then the fruit of the Spirit. And there's some other fruits we could tie in there. These are the most direct ones that are mentioned in Scripture. We'll talk today about the fruit of lips and the fruit of righteousness. We're going to tie those two together today and look at those and look how they lead us to an abundant life. And here's our big idea. My sanctified heart can produce a spiritually fruitful life. My sanctified heart, the heart that God has given when he did heart surgery in me, can produce a spiritually fruitful life. We'll see that today so, so clearly in this message. It's really going to be, I think, powerful. So two today, two, spirit, two specific fruits the believer can bear. We're going to look at two of them today, very simply. Hebrews 13, we'll start here. Here's what he says. We have an altar. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, listen, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Here's our first point today. The fruit of praise is a privilege. The fruit of praise is a privilege. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And this first fruit, we're going to de define it as the fruit of praise, and it is a privilege. It is a privilege. It really is. And there's two ways. On one hand, it's a privilege. I should be grateful that God has made me worthy, that I have the, the, the worth, that I can worship Him, right? In fact, I've used that term before, worth-ship. It's kind of like my worthiness to worship is worth-ship. I'm grateful for that. And then at the same time, I'm grateful because of what praise does and means to my life. Like, praise has a powerful implications in the way I live my life and the abundant life that I discover. We'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. Now, the first thing, what is the fruit of praise? Well, it's a sacrifice. It's, a, it's the sacrifice of praise. It's the, the fruit of lips that acknowledge God's name. It's what we did earlier today, right? I never intended to do this new song on the same Sunday, but it, we sang, I know you by a thousand names. We declared it. We declared earlier in our worship the glory of God. Now, here's the thing. We have to be careful that our Sunday morning worship 
isn't just a bunch of religious expressions just kind of going through the motions. That's easy. It's easy. And so here's the deal. Um, I'm going to skip that. God wants our worship to be more than going through the motions and more than our emotions. Like both of those are a danger. I was thinking, you know, it's, it's interesting today. There are two primary types of songs we can sing in the church today. You can sing, right? You can sing all the old hymns of the, of the faith and you can sing all the old hymns in the hymn book and we sing some of those and, and you can sing all the new choruses of the day. And I thought it's interesting, both come with their own unique danger because it's like these new choruses of the day. We have to be careful that we're just not just getting all emotional and like there's, there's no meat there behind what we're singing. And I try to, when I look at a new song, think, okay, what's, what's the song saying to us? At the same time, the old hymns of the faith, you can kind of just, you've sung them a million times. You're just kind of going through the motions and you're singing words and you're not thinking, what am I really singing? It's like the danger falls in both camps not saying that happens but it can happen we can just get together and stand up and sing and really not connect our spirit to god's spirit you know the beautiful thing i was thinking about this the beautiful thing about congregational singing is it really doesn't depend or matter how talented you are or how good of a singer you are like if you like to sing in the shower you can, you can sing here on sunday morning just sing out and what's really cool about it is if you feel like I'm not a very good singer, the people around you that are, you ever find that the people around you that are good at carrying a tune will help you carry your tune? Like you just kind of follow them? Like and they sing out and you're just like, oh, that's, and you just kind of hook onto them. And, and in the end, though, it sounds beautiful to God. And it's not about how talented we are. We don't all have the, all have the same gifts. But Yeah. So let's think about this idea, what Hebrews says here, because Hebrews says some amazing things about our worship. We're going to see. Now, maybe you remember the woman at the well, right? The, the Samaritan woman. And Jesus encountered her, had a conversation with her, and he said this to her back in John chapter 4. That's not John 6, John 4. But the hour is coming and is now here. And I want you to note that's really important what he says there. The hour is coming and is now here. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. <laughs> When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And, and the, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Here's the deal. If you're going to be a true worshiper of God, you have, to have a relation, you have to have a relationship with God. Like your spirit has to in some way resonate with God's spirit. Your neighbor who doesn't know Christ, your coworker who doesn't know Jesus, has no relationship with God, they really can't worship. Worship is not just our emotional response. Like you go to a service and you emotionally sing the songs and get all worked up. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're not a born-again new creation in Christ, really can't worship. You have to worship in spirit and in truth. And you have, your spirit has to resonate with God's. And look what he says here. I never caught this till this week. The hour is coming and is now here. What's, what's, what's about to happen? What's about to happen? What's the hour is coming and is now? What's about to happen? Christ is going to do what? He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. And his spirit is going to do what? Come into our spirit, make our spirit alive so that we can worship in spirit and truth. I mean, we have a, we have a benefit they didn't even have in the Old Testament because like their spirit was, was dead to God and they had a relationship with God and, and, the, and they related through the law and there was something that went on there that we don't totally understand. And God knew in their heart was sincere. But today... Oh, today, because of the cross and resurrection, Christ comes into us, comes, a, make, comes alive in us, our spirit comes alive, 
and we can worship today in spirit and truth. So that's the, the point here is true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth, right? You have to worship in your spirit and in truth. And then to worship, we must be sanctified or set apart as a worshiper. And that's what, that's what God does through Christ. He sets us apart. He sanctifies us, sets us apart. So you can go out and be a worshiper. So you can worship him. That's part of your number one, one of your number one purposes is to worship God. Simply is. Now, here's the point. What we just read in Hebrews kind of unpacks that for us. It, it describes that for us. Look at it, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Just a little uh, understanding here. This altar is the cross. And so there were those, Hebrews is writing, whoever wrote Hebrews is writing to those Jewish believers who still wanted to cling to the Old Testament altar and the Old Testament sacrifices and hadn't recognized that Christ had ended the sacrifices and there was a new altar, the cross. And that's where we worship today, right? We worship at the cross. If you still worship at the old altar of the Old Testament, of the old sacrifices, you have no right. You're not trusting in Christ. You have no right to, to worship God. He goes on. So our altar is the cross. So he goes on here. Look at this. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place, places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin were burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So I learned this this week, a little Jewish law history here, is that they would kill the animal, they would spread the blood in the temple there, right? They would burn the food and then they would eat it. They'd cook the food and eat it. But when it came to the sin offering, they would spread the blood inside, they would take the animal outside, they would burn it and they would not eat it. Totally destroy it. Totally burned up. And... Uh, and that is a picture of Christ who suffered outside of Jerusalem to sanctify the people. See, Calvary, Golgotha, where Christ was crucified, is just outside of Jerusalem. Pretty fascinating. So he's explaining how Jesus was our sin offering, but note, why was Jesus our sin offering? What was the goal of him being our sin offering? To sanctify the people. What is sanctification? It's when he sets us apart. It's like, it's like here you are, and... Uh, Here's your neighbor. I'm putting my spirit in you. I am setting you apart to do good works for me, to worship me, among other things. And you are set apart from your neighbor whose spirit is still dead and is still rejecting me and has not put his faith and trust in me. So you've been sanctified. Pretty amazing. So I was thinking this is pretty fascinating. I was thinking about God showed me something. That, this really was amazing. Showed me something in three, from three different angles. And so he really wanted me to see this. Understanding our sanctification. We've talked about this, right? Here's what it says about our sanctification, our being set apart. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when you were saved, you were, san you were set apart, you were sanctified, you got his Spirit. You were, you, you were sanctified completely. But then... Look what it says over here in Romans 6. But now, present tense, but now that you have been set free from sin, that you've been saved and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life. So now he's saying, yeah, you're being sanctified. Present tense, what you're going through leads to sanctification. It's like, so how is that? Like, how, how is both, like, you're sanctified. No, you're being sanctified. It's like, 
Okay, the Bible's confusing sometimes, right? And yeah, we've talked about this before. We've talked about the three-tenths nature of our salvation and our sanctification. Like, I have been sanctified. I'm pure and holy and right. I am being sanctified and I will be sanctified. And so God this week said, Bill, remember this verse you talk about all the time over in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that says we are a what? We are a spirit, a soul, and a body. So here's how it works. Oh, he, he goes on, Hebrews 10.24, for by a single offering he has perfected or sanctified or set apart for all time those who are being sanctified. So in one verse, you have it in one verse. You have both the past and the present. But here, here's how it works. Let's understand it. So the truth about the believer's sanctification, my spirit then has been sanctified. Like I have a spirit that has been sanctified. Christ has made my spirit alive, set me apart to be a worshiper, to do good work, set me apart for his glory. So I have been sanctified and that's exactly what he says in verse 10. Christ, Jesus, suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So you are sanctified. If, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you're sanctified, you're set apart, you can be a worshiper. But look what he says in verse 13. He goes on here, right? That's the past tense. Um, my soul is the part of me that is being sanctified. What is my soul? It's my thinker, my feeler, my chooser, my personality. Anytime I choose to set apart my attitudes, my beliefs, my behaviors, I'm sanctifying them. I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of sanctifying my actions and my beliefs and my attitudes and my behaviors and the choices that I make. Christ has sanctified my spirit. Now I am sanctifying my soul by the way I live. And look what he says here in verse 13. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. What's he saying there? He's saying Christ was crucified outside of Jerusalem. And if you've been saved, then you need to go out and identify with Christ. You need to, in essence, take up your cross and follow him. Bear the reproach he bared. Let me tell you, there are things today... <clears throat> that the Bible says that if we believe, you're not, it's not going to be popular. Like, you're, you're going to be criticized. I read, an, I read an interview this week with Chris Pratt. And uh, Chris Pratt, I think I put a couple comments down here. He is a very famous actor, very well-known actor. And so he's being interviewed, and they're asking him some of these things about his faith because he has come out and confessed to being a Christian. And he, in the article, he asked this. He says, why are they coming after me? I don't understand why they're attacking me. Well, here's why they're attacking him. Let me read you a quote from two years ago. He said this at an award show. He said, nobody is perfect. People are going to tell you that you're perfect just the way you are and you're not. You are imperfect. You always will be. But there is a powerful force that designed you that way, which that's not true god didn't design us imperfect but anyway so he's kind of a little off base there but god there's a power force that designed you that way and if you're willing to accept that you will have grace and grace is a gift and, and like the freedom that we enjoy in this country the great that grace was paid for with someone else's blood do not forget it do not take it for granted so he's kind of like kind of given the gospel but not very boldly but he's kind of hinting at the gospel in that article and he says why are they coming after me well because two years ago you said that so he goes on in this in this present day interview he says he says that he never intended to become an icon of christian faith noting that the criticism he has received for speaking about matters of faith in public forums frustrates him now it, it's interesting in the article because he claims to 
have faith and claims to believe in Jesus, explains where that all began. He says, I'm not really religious, but I believe in Jesus. Kind of, and, and so my assessment of him is kind of like this. And I would tell him this to his face. Because it's like he, he wants to talk about how he believes in Jesus and has faith without bearing the implications of his faith. And I see in him one who picked up his cross to follow Jesus and got some backlash. And what he did was he very quietly put his cross back down and backed up. It's like, yeah, I'm not one of those extremists, you know. And, and, and some of his beliefs kind of point to that. Like he won't come out and, and, and say certain things that he knows are not going to be popular. I just thought that was an interesting interview. And I'm not being judgmental. It's what I would say to his faith. It's like if you are a Christian, this is what we believe. What, what does this say? How does this define life and the issues we face in life? It's found in the scriptures. That's what it means to go outside the camp and, and bear the reproach that Christ, Christ, yeah, Christ was uh, crucified for um, our sins and certainly for the beliefs that he had and and we'll be ridiculed for the beliefs that we have if we believe in the Bible at times. We need to prepare ourselves for that. That's a reality. But there's an abundant life found when we embrace the scriptures and we're not ashamed to stand up for Christ. He gives us what we're looking for. And then finally, my body will be sanctified. Like, yeah, one day I'm gonna die. I'm gonna get a glorified body like Jesus got after the resurrection. I'll be able to pass in and out of the walls. Anthony's thinking that's pretty cool. Can't wait till I can do that, man. Well, I'll be all, woo, just in and out of the walls. And, well, we will. We'll get a, a glorified body that, that we just don't even understand. I will be sanctified, even set apart in my body. Uh, oh, Hebrews 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So verse 14 gives us that future tense. We're looking for this future home on high. So that's what this passage tells us about sanctification. And... Uh, you know, here's what's really fascinating. So I said, I'm going to put that verse in my notes. So I go to the verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and I read it, and I'm like, oh, it's been there all along. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. <laughs> and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So it's right there. It's been there all along. God's sanctifying us completely and we sang it today we love the lord with all our heart soul mind and strength right first song we sang today three applications here three applications here that are really powerful you know what is praise it's it's my spirit resonating with and responding to the work of god's spirit in and around me so god is doing stuff in and around my life and praise is just when my spirit resonates and responds to his spirit and uh, yeah that's a beautiful beautiful thing which means for instance praise is several things here praise is gratitude it is recognizing god's work it is anticipation it can be joy it can be awe it can be faith. Like, like, yeah, praise is so many different things. And it's when my spirit resonates with the, what God is doing in and around me. It's an amazing thing. And again, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. And then 
Another application is that praise can give me hope even in my darkest moments. Like when life is really hard and really dark, I have this thing called praise. I can praise God. We sang it again today. Yes, I will. When my heart is heavy, yes, I will declare your name and sing your praise. And yes, I will. And, and there's something about praise that gives me hope in my darkest hours when I'm going through the hardest times of life. And it's an advantage I have over the world. Like the person who doesn't know Christ and goes through difficulty, they don't have the ability to praise God in the storm but I do and it gives me hope and it gives me encouragement and it empowers me in a way you just don't know and here is a third and final application finally this praise being spiritually grounded transcends my emotions isn't that great like praise being spiritually grounded then transcends my emotions and it's like I don't just worship God and praise God when I'm feeling good but I can praise and worship him all the time I heard a song this week, so this just struck me. I heard a song, and I, I listened to music by The Belonging Company. It's a church down in Nashville. I like Natalie Grant, but I heard this song, and I'm like, something about this song struck me. Listen to these words, and it's very repetitious. In, in between every one of these verses, here's the chorus, just the mention of his name, just the mention of his name, just the mention of his name, everything can change, everything can change. And then it goes on. Here's the verses. If you walked in sick, you're going to walk out healed. If you walk in bound, you're going to walk out free. If you walked in heavy, you're going to walk out light. If you walked in weary, you're going to be all right. If you walked in down, you're going to walk out up. If you walked in empty, he's going to fill your cup. Oh, if you walked in broken, you're going to walk out whole. If you walked in lost, he's going to save your soul. In between each of those, they sing that, you know, just the mention of his name. Just, just come in and mention his name. And it's like, I thought, man, there's something kind of dangerous in there. It's like, I understand God can change your life in an instant. But like, I wouldn't tell somebody, you're going to come in sick and you're going to go home with a healing. Or you're going to go home and all your problems are going to be gone because you came in and spoke the name of Jesus. It doesn't work that way. And I understand the sentiment of the song a little bit, but I, as you listen to it, it is such an emotionally charged song. I thought, that's, to me, that's a song that misses the mark. You know, how many people are going to go home and by Wednesday, when their problem is there facing them, they're going to say, well, I mentioned his name, and look, I ain't feeling that healing, or I ain't seeing that light. I'm still struggling. And it's, it's yes, mentioning his name, but... It's, it's spiritually connecting with him, not just emotionally connecting with him. And so I heard that song, and, and maybe God showed me that just to fit it into this message to say, this is what you're working out in your message. What you're working out in his message. Anyway, here's the reality. Emotions will not change us, but Christ will. And true spiritual worship is rooted in a genuine praise. It can be a very tasty fruit okay the big idea today my my sanctified heart can produce a spiritually fruitful life that will transcend my emotions transcend what i'm going through and it'll recognize the work of christ in my life here's our second main point today first thessalonians 1 9 and it is my prayer says paul that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here's our second fruit. Just know this, the fruit of righteousness is practical. The fruit of, right, the fruit of praise is a privilege. The fruit of righteousness is, pra- it is super practical. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
what is the fruit of righteousness? So what does that look like in my life? Even more, what is righteousness as a term? Well, it's real simple. Righteousness is what God alone is and what He makes the believer. There's only one righteous, Christ. There's plenty of self-righteous and plenty of unrighteous. There's only one that is truly righteous, Jesus Christ, right? God the Father, the Holy Spirit. And He makes the believer righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And this righteousness of God is a fruit that we can bear as we sanctify our soul and set apart our beliefs and our behaviors and our attitudes and our actions. And it will lead to an abundant life. We need to know that. It leads to an abundant life. Let me define righteousness, though. It's practical. Let's define it in some practical terms this morning. Like righteousness is more than being right over being wrong. Like, sometimes, you know, you can be right and be wrong because you're just trying to be right. (laughs) And the higher standard is righteousness. Like, righteousness is a higher standard than just being right in life. We need to be aware of that a lot more often. We often can reduce our Christian life to a moralistic right over wrong scenario. The truth is, through Christ, life is so much more and we're called to be more than simply right we are sometimes called to be righteous sometimes right is right and right is the same as righteous but sometimes righteous is a higher standard than right give you a great case scenario i didn't intend this when i was doing the message but this is how god laid this out another example very pressing in our in our world today we just finished pride month right june was pride month and this is where this is where this really speaks again this whole gay marriage issue speaks to this very thing I'm talking about here. See, we understand the Bible gives us a sexual ethic that is based on the righteous character of Christ, not the rights of man. What's the biggest argument about gay marriage? Well, we should all have the right to marry who we want. We should have the right to love who we want. But as believers, we're called to a sexual ethic that is based in the righteousness of God, not just merely the rights of man. And here's the thing. Maybe you didn't understand that. Let me just say how simple this is. You realize that if man had never fallen in the Garden of Eden, if there was no brokenness from sin, no one would have ever had a homosexual desire. Never would have had it. No guy in his 40s would have ever had the desire to cheat on his wife. Never would have happened. See, there are things that are a result of the fall. And that's one of those things that is a result of the fall. And the standard, the sexual ethic is a standard rooted in righteousness, not just in what are my rights. That's why some people, think about the fall, that's why some people are born, like people will say, well, I was born this way. I was born with these desires. Okay, that doesn't make them, that doesn't make them righteous or even right. There, there are people that are born with a bent towards anger. There are people that are born with a bent towards anxiety and depression and need need medication. There are people that we were all born with a bent towards selfishness. None of those are good. None of those are things we celebrate. None of those are things we say, oh yeah, let's just be proud that I'm selfish. Let's be proud that I'm filled with depression. Being born a certain way does not make something necessarily right. At the same time, as believers then, We also don't want to encourage people to embrace their anger or depression or take pride in it. We want to help them 
in Christ find the strength to overcome it. And this is where the whole concept of our identity in Christ comes in, right? You see, God never intended the Bible, God never intended, and the Bible clearly never teaches that our identity is to be wrapped up in our behavior. This will be your greatest struggle if you don't know Christ. You'll find your identity in your anger, you'll find your identity in your depression, you'll find your identity in your sexual desires. But when you come to Christ, he solves that. He says, I am your identity. You're a new creation in Christ and those desires don't define you. You may struggle with them. You may struggle with anger or depression or whatever it might be, but that's not your identity. So, so again, think about this. The true Christian then who themselves walks in sanctification and righteousness is never, we're not homophobic. We just want to help people find their truest identity in Christ where they can find their truest freedom. We believe this is the abundant life to let go of your anger, to let go of your, de- your, your depression, to let go of your past, let go of your pain, to let go of uh, any of those desires that don't align with God's word. Righteousness then is a sanctified heart. We, we define it in practical terms. Righteousness is that sanctified heart God gave me. He sanctified me, set me apart. Now I'm going to set apart my behaviors god set you apart now you set you apart right it's the way it works he's given us this new creation heart now let me show you this in scripture in a powerful way this is a great passage and this is a passage again that if you don't really thoughtfully look at this through the gospel you'll miss what jesus says here it's beautiful the pharisees and scribes in matthew 15 1 came to jesus from jerusalem and said why do your disciples break the tradition of elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat so note the context the religious folks are upset with the disciples because they're not washing their hands and um, they're not following their customs this isn't god's law this is their own customs so he goes on he's going to teach them a lesson down here in verse 10 and he called the people to him and said to them hear and understand it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person but what comes out of the mouth this defiles a person So down in verse 15, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Remember, some parables need explaining. Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does does not defile anyone. Now, this verse can be a little confusing, right? Because we understand today... From, from after the cross, from the New Testament, we, we've done an extensive study on this, on the heart in the New Testament. And we have discovered that when you were saved, God gave you a new heart. A tender heart, an obedient heart, a compassionate heart, a kind heart, right? He changed, he did, he did heart surgery on you. But now this sounds like, well, every bad thing I do comes out of my heart. It's like, how does that work? Well, again, who's he, who's he writing to? He's writing to these religious leaders who do not love God, who do not know God, who have no relationship with God. He's writing this even before the cross. But he's looking beyond the cross. And here is what this passage is telling us, and it's so powerful. Listen to this. The religious leaders, they say, your disciples have a behavior problem. Your disciples are not behaving properly. Like they're not washing their hands. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They have a behavior problem. Jesus turns to the religious leaders and says, no, 
you, your and mankind's problem is, is not a behavior problem. It is a heart problem. You have a heart problem. It's not that your behaviors aren't right. It's that your heart is not right. And until I give you a new heart, everything evil you do comes out of your heart. That's what he's exactly saying there and that is so incredibly powerful. That when God does a heart surgery, a heart transplant, when he gives us his heart, when he sanctifies and sets apart our heart, then we have the potential to go out and to live a certain way. We have to sanctify our own soul. We have to sanctify ourselves. But he, that's the work he does for and in us. So you see, your behaviors do not condemn you, but your heart does. Your spirit being dead to God is what condemns you. Your behaviors don't condemn you. They don't save you. Where you stand before Christ, if your spirit is dead, if you have a dead spirit before God, that is what condemns you. So, again, practically, what is righteousness in practical terms? It's laying down your rights. Like righteousness is when I lay down my rights, which is what Christ did on the cross. He laid down his rights. Was it right that Jesus die on the cross for your sins and my sins? Was that right? No. No, that, that, was, that was mercy and grace and forgiveness. How, he laid down his rights. And so much of the time, think in your own life, so much of the time, where do all the arguments you get into with your spouse, with a coworker, with your friends, with your boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, you get into fights all the time. Why do you get into fights, right? We fight to be right. You get in a fight because I'm right and you're wrong. Or you violated my rights, right? All our fights go back to, I gotta be right. And righteousness lays down our rights and righteousness says, I don't have to be right. I don't need to be right. In fact, sometimes when we fight to be right, we end up being wrong. That's just the way it works. And I was amazed how many scriptures kind of speak to this issue. What causes quarrels, James says, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What's your passion? I'm right. <laughs> I'm right, you're wrong. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Maybe not literally, but right? What did Jesus say? You get angry, it's like you murder somebody, you murder their spirit. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 2 Timothy 2, Paul said, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Yeah, Faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure, pure heart. We have a pure heart. That's our sanctified, set-apart, pure, that's what we have. Have nothing to do with the foolish, ignorant controversies, you know, that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. But we fight to be right. That's just the way it works. We don't want to fight simply to be right. Let me show you back our, in Philippians again, our key passage here, and show you, I want to emphasize a couple of words in here. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So understand what this is rooted in, right? This fruit of, how does this fruit of righteousness grow as God's love abounds in me more and more? As more and more of God's love is stirred up in me and as I approve what is excellent, and there is an excellent choice. Righteousness is the excellent choice of mercy and grace and forgiveness. That's what, that's what righteousness is. It's the excellent choice of mercy and grace and forgiveness. 
And we all need more of that in our life. Rather than fighting for my rights and defending myself, righteousness defaults to mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Righteousness is quick to forgive and extend mercy. Now, let me add a caveat to that and emphasize a different word. It is my prayer, says Paul, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Like, at the same time, there is a level of discernment. When, I give, when I'm coming to giving grace and mercy and forgiveness, there is a level of discernment here. Think about the discernment factor. Think about the discernment factor a moment. Let me read what I wrote down. Even as we show mercy, grace, and forgiveness to others, we also use discernment. For instance, showing, watch this, showing mercy, grace, and forgiveness does not make me more righteous. It is a righteous demonstration of God's love, but I do not become more righteous because I show mercy to someone. Discernment then understands that being a martyr to someone else's incessant mistreatment of me does not make me more righteous. That is not necessarily noble. I do not become more righteous being a constant victim. Meaning there are times in our relationships when we need to show tough love and we need to know that we are valuable. So while righteousness is laying down our rights, not fighting for them, we also do so with great discernment through the Holy Spirit. I just think that's a word someone needs to hear today. We need to be aware of that. Like there is discernment in this, right? But the reality is, I said this on Father's Day, some things can't be repaid. They can only be forgiven. Like there are people that are going to wrong you in life. They're going to hurt you in life. And there's no way they're going to be able to repay you in life. No way at all. All you can do is forgive them. That's it. That's pretty powerful. That's the excellent choice of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And just, isn't it amazing how much God puts in just a little verse like that and how much he puts in for us to pull out and apply to our life and unpack these truths so we understand what righteousness is. Righteousness is not just some lofty theological thing that God did to us. Righteousness is how we can live and, and it's part of the abundant life and it's a fruit we can bear because of the choices that we make. And we'll be blessed when we do righteousness then is the fruit of the abundant life it just simply is like god made me righteous and now if i embrace that and live that way i'll know the abundant life my sanctified heart can produce a spiritually fruitful life it's what everybody wants see everybody wants and they don't know it but everybody in the world wants a spiritually fruitful life but if they don't know christ they, they just don't know how to find that. So what did we learn today? We learned that praise is a privilege. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Praise is a privilege. We have been sanctified and set apart to be a worshiper. And my praise can help me through the most difficult times of my life as I respond to God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's mercy and grace to me. And then we saw this, that the fruit of righteousness is just super practical. It is just super practical. It's more than being right. It is responding like Christ to the people and challenges of my life. And in the end, both of these fruits lead to an abundant life. You want an abundant life today? Praise and worship from your spirit and embrace the righteousness and and live the righteous life as God has made you.
And that takes me back to Mr. Amir Hussein, the one so fascinated with the rhythmic and mathematical side of creation. If you recall, as Amir Hussein contemplated uh, the intelligence of the creation around him, he was left with a question that stumped him. Here he is again in his own words. At the very top of this pyramid he had designed, however, I realized that I was still missing a block that tied it all together. The block is the ultimate question, what is this all for? Or what is my purpose in life? We're trying to find our purpose in life. We really are. That's the lingering question. What is my purpose in life? And I was thinking, as I was wrapping this up, I was thinking about our culture and our society. Like we, all of the, all of the arguments over abortion, all of the division over all of, the, all of and even the whole pride issue. And I thought about, you know how the world responds to those issues? Very emotionally. Yeah, they do. It's just their emotions. They're just so emotional. And sometimes in their emotions, they say things that really, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of substance there. It's just my emotions speaking. And I thought about how the word of God comes along. I hope I showed you that today. Comes along and very clearly just gives us a very thoughtful answer to both of those questions. There's a very thoughtful why we don't abort children. There's a very thoughtful reason why you don't want to embrace a homosexual lifestyle. Both of those things are addressed in Scripture, not emotionally, but very intellectually. One last thing. So I have a distant, distant relative on Facebook, and this person has posted a couple of, a lot of posts lately, actually. And they came out, I don't know, a year ago, decided they were, you know, gay, came out kind of homosexual. And so I have not responded ever. I've only met her maybe once or twice over all the years. And so I don't know her very well. But she keeps posting these things and it struck me. And I was praying last night, Lord, should I respond to her, privately respond to her? Because she put some things on there and I'm like, you need a biblical answer to this. Like she posted on there, um, did you know, she had a whole list of things. Did you know you can be gay and be a Christian? And I'm like, I want to re- respond to her and say, well, not, no, you can't. You can practice the gay lifestyle and be a Christian because if you're saved, if you're truly saved and you go embrace that lifestyle, God's not going to kick you out of the family. But you can't be gay and be a Christian because if you're a Christian, you're a Christian. That's your identity. Your identity is not in your sexual ethic. That's what the world needs to hear today. Like, and that's what everybody does. They define themselves by their desires and their struggles. And so I thought about this, but here's what was fascinating to me when I thought about this, this girl, because she keeps posting these, posting these things, and they're very defensive. Like, she's being very defensive. Like, did you know this? Did you know that? Defending her position, and I think, you know what it is? I think she is a Christian, and I think in her heart, she knows the truth. Her parents have told her that she knows the truth, and so she's trying to convince everybody else. And let me just tell you, this has the truth for us. Not an emotional response, but a spiritual response. And that is where you will find abundant life. I didn't intend for the message to go that way. I really didn't, but that's where God took it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And I just, we, we live around people all the time that are struggling with these issues. 
and they're responding emotionally. And the challenge that we have is like if we're a Chris Pratt and we stand up and, 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 and we, we, we even associate a little bit with the other side, we're going to get ripped apart and criticized and, and we'll be tempted to just put down our cross and slowly back away. Lord, help us not do that. Help us understand that the abundant life is found when we embrace the cross, when we go outside the camp and bear the reproach that, that that's the abundant life. It'll be hard sometimes, yes. But we have the answer the world wants and there's gonna be times you're gonna use us to set someone else free, to to let someone else out of their prison as you give them the truth and you point them to Christ. Lord, let us embrace that today. Use us in this world to be your light, to, to bear the fruit of light. That's another fruit we can bear, to bear the fruit of light in a very, very, very dark world. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, I thank you for your grace for me. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not defined by my behaviors or my thoughts or my attitudes. Or my, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm defined by Christ and that you call me to a higher standard and you don't condemn me for how I sometimes behave. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. In the end, my purpose is ultimately to glorify God and to live a spiritually fruitful life. And that is the abundant life. Thanks so much for tuning in today and listening to this message. Have an awesome week. Thanks again.